Hello everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. This one is all about, well, I'm not going to spoil it. I realize often I give these long-winded intros and kind of give my thoughts on it up front, which might be a mistake because, well, you're going to learn all about it later. I will say that this script has been written by Callum. Thank you, Callum, for putting it together. And uh, if you're watching this show, don't forget to smash that like button. If you're listening on iTunes or podcasts or wherever you get this show, please consider leaving a review or something like that. Anyway, at The Casual Criminalist, what happens is I will read this script that I have in front of me that Callum has provided me. This one is heavy, so I guess this episode is long. I'll add some of my own thoughts if I feel like it. And, uh, well, let's just jump in, shall we? The internet is arguably both the worst and the best thing to have ever happened for humanity. It's pretty outstanding that we have access to almost the entire collective sum of human knowledge in our pockets. But at the same time, we also have access to every bizarre idea ever dreamed up by someone's mad uncle or head of state. Indeed, like the spread of conspiracy theories. I have so, if you're not aware, I have several YouTube channels and the number of people who believe in wild truly wild not like jfk maybe there was another assassin conspiracy theories but you know the assassin was a crazy lizard person conspiracy theories they are rife and the internet facilitated this it's not good for every piece of information there's another piece of misinformation for every fact there is a falsehood it's hard to overstate the effect this has had on crime investigation culture in recent decades we don't just passively receive news stories in our living rooms we can participate directly in them as they unfold for better or for worse. The world of online true crime culture is filled with stories of amateur detectives trying their best to crack the case, while madcap conspiracy addicts, as I already mentioned, spin wild yarns from even the thinnest thread of detail. Today's case is one of modern history's very best examples of this kind of post-mortem crime phenomenon. As far as unsolved cases go, this has to be one of the most mysterious out there, so much so that it spawns theories of haunted hotels, shady conspiracies, and satanic cults. Whenever anyone's like, the ghosts did it, <laughs> as someone who is a very hard skeptic, it's like, no, they didn't. Let's try and find the person who actually did this crime rather than blame it on the ghosts. You know what the police detectives are not doing? It was ghosts. It was ghosts. Never happens. But is this just the tragic tale of a young life cut short? Or is there some truth buried amongst all this weird and wild speculation? One thing's for sure, the start of the story will ensure that you never drink anything but bottled water ever again, environment be damned. The Water Tank it's mid-February 2013. We're at the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, this is a hotel that has a fascinating history, by the way. I have a channel called Geographics where we do about 20-minute long videos about different places uh, around the world, like interesting locations and countries and stuff like that. And the Cecil Hotel, we actually covered in detail. It's got a super interesting history of like from luxury hotel to super seedy place. Uh, there was a famous serial killer who was involved with it somehow. It's a good video, if I might say so myself. Feel free to check it out. After you're done with this one, of course. It's not the cleanest or fanciest place. In fact, it's just plain dirty compared to your average holiday inn. But even though the rough old establishment has seen better days, the guests still hold it to some standards. Pubic hairs on the toilet seat are par for the course, but dirty tap water is just a step too far. The front desk had received dozens of complaints about this within just a couple of days, all of them reporting that the water smelled and tasted awful and had a strange blackish tint for the first few seconds each time the tap was turned on. That's when it even came out at all. Others complained that the low-pressure water was making it impossible to shower. Although, to be fair, uh, a little bit of a spoiler here, you should be grateful that you didn't get to have a shower there to be honest. Santiago Lopez was the maintenance man on duty on the 19th of February that year, and he was assigned to fix the issue. He walked up to the top floor of the hotel, disarmed an alarm on the rooftop door, and stepped outside. Along one edge of the rooftop were four large water tanks, each of which held about a thousand gallons. These provided water to all of the guest rooms, as well as the kitchen and a cafe downstairs. Lopez set up his ladder and climbed up to the top of the tanks. When he craned over to look inside, he got the shock of his life. Staring back at him was the corpse of a woman, floating face up, quite badly decomposed. He later recounted, I noticed the hatch to the main water tank was open and looked inside and saw an Asian woman lying face up in the water approximately 12 inches from the top of the tank. I'm assuming he excluded a few holy f**ks from that calm 
and collected retelling. Lopez informed his manager, who called the police to the hotel. There was little doubt about who the woman was, even before she was officially identified. This was Elisa Lamb, a young woman who had gone missing from the hotel over two weeks prior. When she was found in the tank, she was completely naked, her clothing floating alongside her. The coroner's report later reported a sand-like substance on the fabric. Of course, the police quickly issued an order informing the patrons that the tap water was strictly off-limits for drinking, bathing, and everything else. When they found out about why, it probably resulted in the fastest TripAdvisor rating plummet in history. Decent-sized room. Friendly staff. Oh, the water was contaminated with human remains. Three out of five stars. The task of getting said remains out of the water tank was more difficult than you might imagine. The whole tank had to be drained and a hole cut on the side so that technicians could bring in their equipment. Now, I'll lay down a ground rule for myself right now. I'm not going to go into graphic detail about the state of the body when it was found, apart from when the detail is explicitly pertinent to the theory. Yeah, uh, Callum, we don't need you to. It was in there for, what, two weeks in water in Los Angeles, which I don't know when this occurred, but is usually fairly warm. Um, that body is going to be fairly, let's say, ripe. I mean, the victim was a struggling young woman at the beginning of her life, and it's pretty demeaning to reduce her down to some garish details for the sake of entertainment. Instead, let's rewind a bit to talk about who she was in life and discover how she found herself staying at the Cecil Hotel in the first place. The Victim Eliza Lamb was a 21-year-old Canadian student with a love of literature and art. Her parents were immigrants from Hong Kong who owned a successful restaurant in a town east of Vancouver. Elisa, or Lam Ho Yi, to use her Cantonese name, had been studying at the University of British Columbia, but it wasn't going quite as well as she had hoped, a nightmare for someone with an academic aptitude as good as hers. Yeah, the uh, Asian students um, taking foreign or Western names is an interesting one. I went to school with a bunch of kids from China, Korea, and they all took like very stereotypical English names, and it was... Uh, Slightly amusing, I guess. One dude chose the name Whitney, which I always found like quite a strange choice. But um, yeah, anyway, a diagnosis for bipolar disorder and depression had thrown her studies into something of a crisis, causing her to drop some classes back in 2012. She wrote online that she had essentially been trapped in her first year of university for three years in a row, all on account of these speed bumps. At the start of 2013, she was on an extended hiatus from her studies and feeling the pressure of her future looming over her. To escape from the stress for a while, she dreamed up a plan. She would go on a solo trip down the west coast of America, enjoying the kind of free and easy existence that her favorite writers had lived and written about, if only for a short while. Her parents were understandably hesitant to agree. Every parent in the world is anxious about the idea of their kids flying the nest, especially for a solo trip to another country. Yeah, I I've done this. And now as an old man, I definitely appreciate that my parents might not have felt this was the best thing in the world. I went on boating trips by myself, motorcycle trips by myself, backpacking trips by myself, and I got into trouble. Like, never any serious trouble. Like, never, you know, I wasn't that close to dying, but I was close to some pretty bad accidents at points. And, uh, yeah, I now, uh, as an older man, have a bit more appreciation for for what my parents put up with. Eliza was able to convince them by offering to call every day to check in, and with their hesitant consent, she set off for her adventure. Yeah, it was definitely months in between calls back home. <laughs> I'd send emails being like, yeah, yeah, no, still alive, doing good. And this was the era of Facebook, so it was, it was you know... Yeah, no, I'm sure that made them feel better. <laughs> By late January, she had made it down to San Diego. Despite a missed flight and a night spent sleeping in an airport, things were going great. We know that because Eliza was a keen blogger. In 2010, she started a public diary on Blogspot, but then switched over to Tumblr with a page she called Nouvelle Nouveau. Her posts mostly focused on art, mental health experiences, and a huge love of books. Although during her trip, she also wrote some updates of what she was getting up to day to day. In San Diego on January the 25th, she wrote, Today I slept, took a long hot shower, stuffed myself silly with a $3 dinner. It has been most productive and enjoyable. I seriously have done nothing in San Diego that is out of my normal routine at home. I do what I want. All caps invigorating stuff. <laughs> at this point, there was apparently no cause for concern. Eliza was feeling happy and free. After a great time in San Diego, it was onwards to Santa Cruz. Or that was the original plan anyway. On the way there, she decided to stop over for a few days in LA, likely just since she was so nearby already. Arriving by Amtrak train on the 26th, she later checked into the Cecil Hotel on the 28th for a three-night stay, probably attracted by its budget hostel rooms 
and central location. On the 27th, the night before she went to the Cecil, she had already decided to hit the town and soak up the LA atmosphere. As detailed in a couple of brief blog posts from that day, she went to a local speakeasy-style bar, a little worried about the, and I quote, creepers who might talk to her. She probably never mentioned those kinds of half-joking worries to her parents, but she did honor her promise to keep them updated every day. And then, on the morning of January the 31st, the call never came in. The video. Her parents were worried sick, so they called the Los Angeles police later that day, who discovered that Eliza hadn't shown up for checkout at the hotel. They began to investigate the case as a disappearance and brought in dogs to search the premises, even heading to the rooftop without any luck. I've just, this is great police work. I wouldn't expect, like, if a young woman, you know, just doesn't show up for a hotel check-in or call her parents and she's out on some adventure that the police immediately get the dogs involved. I like that. Detective Wallace Donnell later said that they searched every nook and cranny of the building where we thought there was a room, locked or unlocked. It was to be opened. It was to be searched. This stands in slight contrast to the statement of one Sergeant Rudy Lopez, who mentioned that they first searched all of the areas they could legally access without probable cause. This means that the long-term, privately rented rooms would likely have required consent from the occupier to access. In any case, nothing turned up. Elisa's family flew down to aid in the search, unsatisfied with the fact that the police hadn't instantly labeled the circumstances as suspicious. I mean, like, the police are doing a good job. They're searching the building. I, I, I'm impressed they've done this much. Although, if it's your daughter, I, I suppose you'll, like, do more. In the eyes of the LAPD, there was a solid chance in those early stages that Elisa would turn up after a day of sightseeing or a few crazy nights out on the town. But as the days rolled on, there was still no trace. To everyone involved, it seemed as if she had simply disappeared entirely, leaving her belongings laid out in a hotel room as if she planned to return. Her phone, however, was missing. As the chances of finding Elisa by conventional means dwindled, the police turned to more controversial methods. They released footage of Elisa's last known sighting to the press. Why was this controversial? Well, this was no ordinary CCTV footage of someone strolling past a cafe or buying cigarettes at a 7-Eleven. The last recorded footage of Elisa Lam was profoundly strange and profoundly disturbing. It was captured by the cameras installed in the hotel elevator, said to be at around 2 a.m. on the day of her disappearance, although the timestamp is blurred out. In the grainy video, Elisa enters the lift and presses a bunch of buttons on the panel. The doors don't close, and she then leans out into the hallway, looking left to right before quickly retreating back inside. She stands calmly in the middle of the elevator for a sec before skirting around to hide next to the control panel. The whole time, the doors remain wide open, suggesting a malfunction which might have been caused by the button mashing. At around two minutes in, Elisa hops out and seems to be communicating with an unseen person while moving her hands in erratic, strange gestures. After that, she walks off down the corridor out of frame as the elevator doors start opening and closing over and over again. Admittedly, the whole thing is distressing to watch. I, I watched the video before we did this, uh, before I sat down to record this today, and it is a weird video. I'm not sure if we'll get copyright ding for it if you're watching the video version of this, but if, if you're just listening or you're not seeing a clip from it right now, it's worth looking up for context, and it is very weird. This video hit the internet on the 14th of February, and it instantly went viral. With millions of views and tens of thousands of comments, the story spreads not only in America, but also overseas. On Chinese web media platforms like Baidu and Yoku, it garnered 3 million views in just 10 days. Those users had the same conversations about evil spirits and malicious cover-ups, which probably plagued the YouTube comments section. Have a stroll down if you're watching on YouTube, you'll probably see what I mean. I'm also intimately familiar with YouTube comment sections. The fact that automatically scheduled posts continued to be released on Elisa's blog for several months after her death certainly didn't help matters. Neither did the eerie similarities to the 2005 horror movie Dark Water, which follows pretty much the exact same plotline as this real-life case. Those two factors fueled the conspiracy theories and supernatural theories, respectively. Add to that the theories of amateur analysts who insisted that the blurred timestamps on the video seemed to skip forward at one point, revealing that it was edited before release. Likewise, Eliza's mouth seems pixelated at times, as though we're not permitted to know what she's saying. It's unclear if these are technical flaws in the poor quality footage, or if it really was edited, perhaps to protect the privacy of some innocent passers-by unconnected to the case. As for the ghost theories, on the other hand, I'm sure some of you happily tossed them aside outright. I mean, the idea that this old hotel was haunted by some malicious spirit which killed poor Eliza does not belong in a police report. Yes, Callum and I are on the same page. So, I don't think it belongs in any responsible exploration of the facts either. Although... You know, if you uh, if you disagree with me, or if you want to see people disagreeing with me, like I say, the YouTube comment section on this video will be rife. 
So what do the facts tell us? Well, we know from the toxicology report that Elisa had been prescribed at least five different kinds of drugs for her mental health conditions. With this cocktail of drugs potentially reacting badly in her system, it's very possible that what we're witnessing on the tape is just a serious mental episode. Or more compellingly, it might have been caused by the absence of drugs in her system. The same report seemed to suggest that Elisa had been off some of her medication for at least several days, and on the day of her death, she had not taken some key mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. These kinds of drugs are often prescribed in tandem to combat their individual side effect meaning a lapse like this could have major consequences yeah this is the thing it's like immediately okay it's got something to do with mental health and drugs you know what it's not got something to do with ghosts the strange hand movements not unlike those which someone on class a drugs might perform outside any british nightclub on a saturday night while telling the bouncers how much he loves them are known in medical circles as psychomotor agitation a fairly reliable indicator of a manic episode and if a manic episode were taking hold of the victim there's every chance it could be accompanied by hallucinations and delusions but the memeverse doesn't care about tragic tales of mental health problems. The masses demanded ghost stories. Damn it! And unfortunately, the Cecil Hotel was all too happy to oblige. History of the Hotel I'm glad we're going to get into this a little bit because it is an interesting building. Like I say, if, if what you hear just now isn't enough for you, definitely go check out that biographics video. See, this was no ordinary, rundown budget in. The Cecil has a long and troubled past, which gained it a reputation of being cursed long before Eliza stepped through the doors. You might not guess to look at it from the outside. It looks like any other 20th century hotel built in a style called Beau Arts, which you'll see a lot of in the older parts of LA. It opened its doors in 1927, marketed as a fairly glitzy, marble-floored hotel for businessmen visiting the city. For the first couple of years, its 600 rooms did a roaring trade, but in the Great Depression is coming. But if you know your US history, however, you'll understand that business wasn't exactly booming after that. Just a couple of years after the grand opening, the Great Depression hit. The neighborhood, which it stands in on the western corner of colorfully named Skid Row, was already the epicenter of drug abuse and homelessness in central LA, and things only got worse as the country plunged into recession. With Los Angeles the final stop on the cross-country railways, the area became a magnet for drifters and runaways. After about 90 years of that kind of decline, you can imagine that the Cecil wasn't the nicest place to lay your head. By this point, the place was split between a slightly revamped youth hostel and rooms which had long been inhabited by the down-and-outs of LA. I'll leave it to Eliza herself to describe the neighborhood as she saw it in 2013 when she wrote about it on January the 29th. I've arrived in La Land, sick, and there is a monstrosity of a building next to the place I'm staying. When I say monstrosity, mind you, I'm saying as in gaudy, but then again, it was built in 1928, hence the Art Deco theme. So yes, it is classy, but then since it's LA, it went on crack. Okay. Her blog posts are quite hard to read. She's not wrong. The area was really plagued by crack when the drug hit the streets in the 1970s, accelerating the decline of the local area and dragging the Cecil down further with it. As local guide Richard Shave explained, by 1990, the LAPD won't go in there. It was like, if we're called, we'll go in, but we're not patrolling. As you can imagine, that kind of lawless reputation has made Skid Row a magnet for some unsavory characters throughout the years. The most high-profile of them was the Night Stalker. No, not an ill-advised superhero character concept. It was the nickname given to serial killer Richard Ramirez. He was a proud Satanist and sadist whose year-long murder spree left 25 people dead. I actually made a video about Richard Ramirez. He is a total psycho. If Casual criminalist, if you'd like a video about R Richard Ramirez, sort of a in more in-depth look... Let me know. Mm. In fact, I haven't specifically made a video about Richard Ramirez. It was covered in the Cecil Hotel video. So if you would like a video about Richard Ramirez, you know what to do. Uh, suggest it to me. About six years after his capture, another serial killer laid his hat at the Cecil. This was Austrian Jack Unterweger, a journalist who used police ride-alongs to scope out areas where he could strangle prostitutes to death. His bizarre story warrants an episode in itself, but cool, I'm glad to see it, that would be a good future one. But for now, I'll just tell you that this awful human being became popular in the European art scene for his poetry and autobiography, got released from prison after 15 years, became a TV celebrity, and then returned to California for more killing. Yeah, this guy was a total psycho. I know his story. Um, they let him out. This is true. They let him out, and then he continued kill him. killing. <laughs> like, Don't let him out. He's a serial killer. Come on, guys. Anyway, the point of all of this was to show you that the Cecil was fertile ground for all sorts of theories to spring up 
about it online. Alongside all the dust and dirt and decline, the rooms of this ill-fortuned hotel had accumulated no end of rumors and myths for the masses to feed on, including a dubious connection to the Black Dahlia murder, an unsolved rape murder, and a string of suicides, one in which a jumper landed on a passerby, killing them both. Not a, like, sweater, but a, uh, but a person jumping off a building. When you actually look at the stats, however, there were likely no more or less unnatural deaths than any other hotel with a high percentage of down and outs. I mean, if your life was going how you always dreamed it would, chances are you wouldn't have checked in at the Cecil. And it's LA, for Christ's sake. Half the sociopaths in the world live there. <laughs> Regardless, you could be damn sure that every one of these macabre connections was labored to death when the case of Elisa Lamb broke online. The paranormal versus the psychological explanation. Oh no, here we go. <laughs> I really hope that the paranormal explanation gets absolutely destroyed because it's clearly bull. Eliza's demise was just the latest chapter in a long and troubled history, which eventually caused the hotel to change its name and branding entirely. It's now just called the Stay on Main Hotel. If you're at all superstitious, be sure to check their reviews for any recent paranormal activity before booking. You don't need to do that because there's no paranormal activity because it doesn't exist. <laughs> People might be wondering why I'm so adamantly against this, and I just I'm adamantly against anything where there isn't really any evidence outside of anecdotal stuff that even though people have been trying for decades, maybe even centuries, to try and prove that this stuff exists. Um, when it doesn't, you know, James Randi, who sadly recently passed away, famously a, a very famous skeptic who, you know, didn't he have a very large prize for anyone who could prove the existence of ghosts or the paranormal and stuff, and yet no one did it. Because if the internet is to be taken at its word, then the place is potentially a hotbed for all kinds of bizarre phenomenon. The theories surrounding Eliza's death are too many to count, but a few stand out for their extravagance and prolificness. I'll run through a few of them here in no particular order. Number one, a supernatural entity which preys on residents of the hotel possessed the victim and forced her to enter the tank. Number two, the victim was playing the Korean elevator game, which allows you to access an alternate dimension by pressing elevator buttons in a certain sequence. That cannot be real. Please, people. Number three, Satanists who meet at the Cecil ritually sacrifice the victim to the devil. Oh, no. A Mexican death metal musician sacrificed the victim to the devil. Well, I mean, that one is slightly plausible. I mean, not the actual sacrificing to the devil, but he could believe it. I mean, I don't believe there's any evidence to support that, but at least it's something that is possible rather than pressing magical elevator buttons to get to a different dimension. Maybe I'll try that the next time I'm in an elevator. Number five, a firm called the Invisible Light Agency, which makes invisibility cloaks, killed Elisa for trying to reveal their secrets. Well, if they're a company that makes invisibility cloaks, surely they wouldn't want secrets. I mean, it'd be a pretty shitty marketing campaign. These are all ridiculous. Let's move on. Okay, with that out of the way, we can move on to more serious considerations. See, I think the mental health angle is the more reasonable one. Yes, Callum. Fully agree. I hope everyone listening also agrees. The mind is a powerful thing, and the materialistic approach tells us that natural malfunctions in the ultra-complex lump of grey matter in our skulls are responsible for every spook and spectre we've ever dreamed into existence. Yeah, any time, you know... Like deja vu is another one. Every time I have deja vu, it's like, this time is different. I definitely had a dream about this. And then five seconds later, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, stupid brain. And anytime it's like, you know, someone walks over your grave or you get a shiver down your spine or you see something out of the corner of your eye that isn't there, it's not ghosts. It's just your brain being imperfect because, as Callum said, it's wildly complicated and things go wrong with it. There's a fascinating condition called exploding head syndrome, where some people, as they're lying down for bed and going to sleep, they hear an enormously loud bang, and it's just their brains messing with them. And I'm like, that is crazy, and I hope I never get that, because it would terrify the crap out of me. You don't have to look far to find stories of people who are prescribed drugs for conditions, whether mental or physical, only to experience strange apparitions and dissociative experiences. In essence, our understanding of the mind is still pretty rudimentary, miles behind our understanding of the body, so psychoactive drugs are still an imprecise science. Yeah, I really think, like, while it is incredible, the drugs that we now have for treating mental health and stuff, I do think in the future we'll look back on it and be like, wow, we didn't understand shit. Like, yes, this drug works, and we vaguely know why, sometimes we don't, but, like, I, I still don't really think we under... Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I feel like I recently read that we don't understand why lithium works as a mood stabilizer. We just know that it does. And I'm like, 
that is wild. And we're going to look back in the future and be like, whoa, we were giving ourselves all kinds of crazy stuff and hoping it works. Um, yeah, for good reason. I mean, if it stabilizes your mood, take it. But it is fascinating. I find all of this stuff fascinating. Unlike the paranormal, which I have no interest in because it's all made up. <laughs> If we were to ask if it's possible that a psychotic episode alone would be enough to cause Eliza to strip down, climb into a water tank, and drown herself, the answer would hypothetically be, of course, yes. People have done stranger things on account of cognitive misfirings, a reality which is probably more frightening than any ghost story. Yeah, because it can happen to you. Like, your brain can go wrong, and you could do something really dumb. Don't just take our word for it, though. There's evidence that Eliza's mental state may have been slipping in the days leading up to the event. We know that the manager moved Eliza from the hotel dormitory she had originally booked into a private room after just two nights. The other guests in the room had reported her acting strangely, which made them uneasy about sharing a space with her. Or maybe that was just a clever ploy to get a private room at a hostel. <laughs> What's more, Eliza's family actually failed to mention her mental health issues when she first went missing, perhaps trying to keep it in the family, which is common in cultures which view mental health problems as taboo. Also, it's going to get the police to take it more seriously, because they're going to be like, oh, okay, maybe she's having some sort of mental... Maybe they would take it more seriously if she was having a mental episode, actually. But they might be like, oh, she's out like running around like crazy rather than she has been killed. Their own explanation, however, was that they thought that to suggest their daughter was deranged might have caused the police to jump to conclusions, okay, and dial down their search, okay, fair enough, a misguided attempt to aid the efforts to help find their daughter. Before we go any further, let's take a quick look at exactly what kinds of drugs and conditions I'm talking about. The toxicology report is one of our best pieces of objective evidence, and it checked for five drugs which should have been in Elisa's system according to her medical records. Bupropion, an uncommon antidepressant, was missing, only its metabolites remained, which in plain English means that she had taken it recently, but not on the day of her death. The same was true of the mood stabilizer, Lambotrigine, which was found in trace amounts in her liver. She had, however, taken an antidepressant called Venlafaxine that day, while she was carrying around a lot of pills. But most importantly, there was zero trace of her antipsychotic quetiapine. Maybe, I'm sorry about these drug pronunciations, they always make them very difficult. Meaning, she had likely been cut off this for days. It only takes around a day and a half for this to break down in the body completely. Now, if you're sitting there confused and without a medical degree, do not worry! I don't have one either. But according to people who do, the most important thing to take away from this data is this. The antipsychotic drug was likely prescribed to reduce the risk of manic switches, which can be triggered by strong antidepressants like bupropion when given to people with bipolar disorder. Once the antipsychotic left her body, Elisa was potentially vulnerable to these unhappy side effects. So there's a strong chance that what triggered this whole thing was a simple matter of brain chemistry, the complications from a lapse in medication or an unforeseen exacerbation of existing mental health problems. Elisa was at the age when more serious medical conditions like schizophrenia can start to manifest. In all likelihood, though, we have to assume that the drugs hold the key. I doubt the manufacturers have since amended the labels, though, to say positive side effects may include drowsiness, itchy skin, or suicide by drowning. That's not great for sales. Although, I don't think they're really concerned about sales when they're doing those, uh, you know, may cause things. They're definitely legally covering their ass. We don't have ads for prescription drugs in the uk and i don't think in europe as a whole anytime i go to america like sitting down at breakfast at the hotel or whatever and turn on the tv or, you, or there's a tv on in the background and there's an advert for drugs which i always find so strange and then they list this huge list of side effects while people are walking on a beach or something it's like okay it's like may cause death stroke heart attack it's like oh my god okay never mind i don't want it but i'm imagining that they're, they're legally obliged to do that Suicide by drowning wasn't quite the wording used by the authorities. Her death was listed as an accident, with bipolar as a contributing factor. The distinction makes sense. If Eliza genuinely believed she was being chased or threatened, then her logic in entering the tank would have been to hide in there rather than to end her life. Her death was just the unforeseen result of panicked delusions. That's the official verdict anyway. But is this perhaps too simple of an explanation? Maybe in trying to cut through all the noise and mad theories, we've gone too far in the other direction and rushed right past the possibility of mundane foul play. Before we can say for sure, we need to understand why some people cast doubt on the idea that Eliza would even have been capable of ending her own life in that way at all. The Complications 
These are the reasons why the case just refuses to be laid to rest in the unsolved crime community. The gaps which overactive imaginations are filled with all kinds of ideas, some of which may possibly have some truth to them. The first concerns the basic practicalities of accessing the roof at all. As I mentioned before, when the custodian Santiago Lopez went up to the roof, he had to turn off the alarms before opening the door. How could Elisa have opened it without triggering those alarms? This fueled speculation that perhaps someone with the access card or codes to the roof had taken Elisa up there. However, this story was big news from the get-go, and some of the more enterprising amateur sleuths weren't content to just sit and discuss ideas online. One Chinese true crime fan decided to visit the hotel in person to check for any access points to the roof, finding that it was actually possible to bypass all the security using the hotel fire escape in Instead, of course, he posted a video of the whole thing online. Yeah, getting onto the roof of buildings without setting off alarms, I don't imagine, especially big buildings, I don't imagine is going to be the greatest cha- challenge in the world. I mean, people must go up there to smoke. Also, it's a hostel. Like, it's literally young people who are bored and don't have enough money to go out and do other things. So they're likely just to, you know, mess around. Like, I've definitely done this many times. Maybe not specifically climbing onto the roof of places, but just messing around. Going places you're not supposed to go. I can't imagine it's that challenging. Although the fact that this Chinese dude flew halfway around the world to find it out is... I mean, that's dedication. The next question then surrounds the tank itself. Lopez and the other maintenance man usually use ladders to access the 8-foot-tall tanks. Yet 5-foot-4 Eliza had seemingly clambered up there unassisted. What's more, the covers themselves weighed around 35 kilograms, which Eliza would have to lift first and then close as she entered. Well, first off, the same Chinese netizen was able to demonstrate that one part of the roof actually stood at a higher height than the tanks and had a bright red ladder fixed to its side. This means it would be very easy to climb up there and then jump down onto the tanks. What's more, in the video, he can clearly see that two of the tanks are still sitting open. Okay, I mean, all of this stuff and all of this speculation about how did she get into the tanks? I'm just like, you don't think the police considered this? You don't think the police noticed that a part of the roof was higher? and there was a bright red ladder there which she could easily climb up it's like yeah it's not in the police reports or it's not mentioned by the police because it's a blindingly obvious this was one year after the accident since the hotel still clearly hadn't learned its lesson it's responsible to some eyes then that all of this talk of unbeatable alarm systems and completely secure tanks may have just been part of the hotel management's attempt to avoid a financially crippling ruling in the wrongful death lawsuit launched by eliza's family if we imagine that a confused eliza went up to the roof out of either fear or curiosity getting into the tank would have theoretically been no problem at all so it's the closing of the hatch which is the real crux here because according to the proponents of this theory to do so from the inside or while entering would have been nigh on impossible. The height of the tank and weight of the cover would have prevented it. This is a popular and compelling argument among those who argue foul play was involved, but actually, I don't think it warrants any consideration at all. Why? Because in 2013, six months after her death, Eliza's parents launched that wrongful death lawsuit that we mentioned a moment ago. They argued that the hotel didn't do enough to ensure the safety of their daughter. The case itself would eventually be thrown out two years later, but the documents from it include an important rundown of events from Santiago Lopez himself. We heard the crucial part of it earlier, describing when he found the body, in which he clearly states, I noticed the hatch to the main water tank was open. Apparently, nobody had noticed this during the first search of the rooftop because nobody had thought to climb up onto the water tanks. So, based on the testimony of the person who actually found the body, there's no reason to believe that Eliza did actually close the cover. This just seems like a textbook case of misinformation muddying the waters. Now, there are conflicting reports floating around about whether the hatch really was closed or not, but in the absence of any definitive version of events, I'll defer to the legal testimony. Shoot me if I'm wrong. Go on, I'll write about it in an episode. Yeah, um, this just seems... People grabbing at straws to make it more interesting, to find a conspiracy when there isn't one. This just seems like the sad death of a mentally sick young woman. So far, there's nothing which can't be reasonably explained. But how about the toxicology report? Can we fully trust it? Is there any reason we shouldn't? <laughs> Again, are we looking for a conspiracy where there is none? There's that fantastic um, explanation of why we like conspiracy theories. So as hunter-gatherers or whatever, we were out hunting in the forests, you know, looking for deer and shooting them with spears or throwing spears at them. And if there was a tiger in the bushes and it was rustling it really makes us our bodies are wired to hear that rustling and so even when it's just the winds blowing through the brushes and there is no tiger our bodies are like there is a tiger there because 
you know, the risk of there being a tiger there and us ignoring it is really, really high. And this is the same for conspiracy theories. Like, the rustle in the bushes is the conspiracy theory. There's no tiger there 99% of the time. Since there wasn't enough blood to run as thorough a screening as some would have liked, they believed that the coroner might have missed some illicit drugs in Eliza's system. As you're probably already aware, California is not short on psychedelics, and a drug such as LSD could certainly have caused all of the strange behavior in the elevator. Was Eliza spiked with acid, or perhaps some other drug? Well, she had been alone the whole evening, as far as any witnesses had seen, and there was only a trace amount of alcohol detected in her bile, pretty much negligible, as we know she had been drinking on some of the evenings prior, and she had none in her blood, which makes the spiking theory unlikely. Other aspects of the autopsy have been called into question online. For example, the absence of rape kit findings in the final report when one had apparently been ordered from the beginning. Also, the fact that there was apparently pooling of blood in the anal cavity of the body. The latter can be taken as evidence of a potential sexual assault, but several forensic pathologists have explained that it was most likely due to the natural process of decomposition in water. Again, not to go into too many grim details, but she was floating in the water for two weeks. Her body was decomposing. Likewise, the inherent problems caused by this kind of strange death can account for the apparent indecision surrounding the cause of death pronouncement. Some online sleuths have pointed out that on the paperwork, it seems that the coroner first checked one box ruling the cause of death unexplained and then changed their answer to accidental death, a simple clerical error or a revision in their conclusion midway. We'll never know for sure, but it's certainly not proof of anything strange. The last pieces of evidence which might give us reason to suspect something shady circumstantial. The first is that Eliza visited a nearby bookshop the day before her death. The owner, Kate Orphan, said that she had been buying gifts for her family and was outgoing, very lively, very friendly. She hardly came across as someone on the edge of a mental break and had no wild plans for the day. Yeah, but she can have different parts of a, a mental episode. Uh, for example, if she's manic and stuff, then she is probably outgoing and friendly, and then later on that can switch, or the manic behavior can become a lot worse. It's complicated. And then, as I mentioned before, her phone was missing. If you dig around online, you'll also find people mentioning her missing laptop too. Had someone stolen them after killing her? That's what some internet theorists would have you believe. But again, we have to go back to the lawsuit statements which came to light towards the end of the case in 2015. Those are far more reliable than anything a quick Google search might throw up. Detective Tonelli stated that, in fact, the laptop was among the objects which the staff stored in the luggage room in the basement while the search was underway, along with Eliza's backpack and other personal effects. Case closed. The phone, however, that really was missing. But through a little light detective work of my own, ooh, well done, Callum, I might have found an explanation straight from Eliza Lamb herself. Remember her Tumblr post about getting ready to head out to a bar? Well, later that night, she followed it up with this. The speakeasy was awesome, except I lost a cell phone. Sigh. It's there for anyone to read. I'll admit the phrasing makes it slightly inconclusive. A cell phone and not my cell phone, but the explanation lies in the hashtags, which sounds like a line from a hammy police procedural aimed at tweens attached to the post. Eliza wrote, Hashtag and it's not even mine. Hashtag it's my friend's old Blackberry. Hashtag that he's lending to me. Hashtag and uh, hashtag well not lend. What is up with her hashtags? She's hashtagging like individual words like and it's that. Is that how hashtags work on Tumblr or is this lady not aware of how hashtag works? Not lend hashtag he doesn't want it anymore. Hashtag but ugh. Hashtag stupid. Okay, hashtag stupid. I think you can do that one. Um, <laughs> Callum notes that actually saying hashtag each time would work best here for a lighthearted tone. And I agree. It does sound ridiculous. Why would she need to borrow anyone's old phone? Well, let's jump back to December the 29th, 2012, and you'll find that Eliza wrote a Tumblr post which said, Unfortunately, my cell phone is misplaced. And that's in quotations. Life tip number 1820. Never ever work in a shoe store, especially if it's ladies' shoes. Her surrounding post suggests that she was stressed working at a shoe store job during the post-Christmas rush, and she seems to be suggesting here that she lost her phone sometime during that busy period. We can reasonably assume, then, that she got the replacement Blackberry from her friends before the trip, perhaps not telling her parents what had happened. Then, after losing that Blackberry at the bar on the 27th, she was left without a phone and had to find another way to call home. Somehow, this seems to have slipped the attention of a lot of people who have looked into the case, attaching so much significance the missing phone. Really, it seems likely, given these little details lifted from the blogosphere, that it's a complete non-issue, explainable, without resorting to any wild conjecture. Yeah, I mean, this was easily solved. It was in her blog posts. 
Again, there's people looking for tigers where there are no tigers. There's nothing in particular about any of these objections which discredits the idea of a tragic accident. Simple misinformation has sent some well-meaning people barking up the wrong tree. But if you find my skepticism frustrating, I don't, Callum, I love it. And want to let your mind run a little bit wild with the possibilities, let me introduce you to someone with a very different opinion. The Media Fallout Perhaps the most dedicated proponent of the foul play angle is a writer named Jake Anderson, who published an entire book on the case in 2020 called Gone at Midnight. Depending on which side you're already on, you might find it an incisive piece of investigative journalism or just another piece of sensationalist exploitation. Whatever the case, the amount of time and energy Anderson expended on the research means will give his fit theory a fairer crack of the whip than the others. The main crux of the theory, developed through in-person interviews and visits to the locations involved, is that one of the employees at the hotel, which has a track record of hiring people with patchy pasts, may have exploited Eliza's mental health condition to draw her up to the rooftop and murder her. Anderson speculates that's maybe why she was mashing elevator buttons, she was stopping someone else from using it, or vice versa. Let's lay out a timeline of events if that was the case. First, Elisa checks into the hotel, staying in a dorm room for a couple of nights. After that, she's moved into a private room. Someone at the hotel senses an opportunity now that they have access to a young woman staying by herself all evening. Meanwhile, Elisa heads out to the bookshop, buying gifts for her family and chatting to the cashier. When evening comes, she returns to the hotel. Perhaps she goes to her room, perhaps she has a walk around the place. Whatever the case, someone, be it a guest or more likely a member of staff from the hotel, takes their chance. They attack Eliza, or otherwise make her feel threatened, and she flees down the stairs and into the elevator. She presses the buttons to prevent her assailant from using the lift themselves while trying to hide. Her attacker catches up with her, leading to the conversation by the elevator entrance. Eventually, Eliza heads off down the corridor, either fleeing or convinced to go willingly. Whichever way, her life ends that night, on the rooftop or in another part of the hotel, after which she is hidden in the water tank. That sounds like a terrible place to hide a body, because eventually... Someone is going to notice that there is a body in the water tank. Perhaps this happens right away, or perhaps she is hidden in another part of the hotel until after the sniffer dogs have done their sweep of the roof. After that, the perpetrator manages, with the help of an employer who'd rather sweep the whole thing under the rug, to edit the CCTV tape, removing their face by chopping out almost a minute of footage. That's that. So far, I'm like, okay, plausible, plausible, plausible. And now I'm like, the employer's going to help the guy who killed someone edit the CCTV footage and get himself included in a way more serious crime than no crime whatsoever. Very skeptical of that. They realize that Eliza's existing mental health conditions, revealed by the drugs in her luggage, will mean that the resulting footage can stand as evidence that she took her own life. On top of all of that, some of these sources Anderson interviews imply that a corrupt LAPD may have been complicit in a cover-up either to wrap things up neatly for the cameras in the city or to protect corporate interests with links to the hotel and plans for an impending renovation. Again, it's a fairly seedy hotel. I don't think there's going to be a ton of money in that, is there? And also, corrupt police. Is there evidence of that? I, I, there's no mention of evidence. So, do we find the whole idea credible? I mean, yes, I suppose, at a stretch, some of Anderson's theories, I, I don't know, I haven't read the book, are believable. They're certainly an option, but they just don't seem like the most likely option, do they? I mean, I can't stop you buying into it, but if we take some quick swipes with Arkham's razor, we already know we can trim this case down to a tragic set of accidental circumstances. Exactly. Whatever example would anyone in the police risk so much for the sake of some beat-up old hotel, especially when the victim was a well-off foreign citizen? And why, if the hotel or police were covering something up, would they release their edited footage online for millions of viewers to see? And why, tell me why, please, would their method of covering up the truth involves such bizarre circumstances which could invariably draw the largest amount of media attention possible. Exactly. I just think there are too many wild stretches in this version of events. But at the end of the day, if someone is desperate to write a noir story, they'll find a noir story to write. Essentially, Anderson's book just gives a further platform to the cast of oddball conspiracy theories who have latched onto this case tightly for the past seven years or so. The most compelling question he poses relates to something that was corroborated in the wrongful death lawsuit testimony. There was additional footage from the hotel which the police never released. 
why. Apparently, it featured two men entering the hotel lobby with Eliza and then handing her a small box. Surely those two people must have been of interest to the investigation. As I mentioned, this isn't just some nonsense invented on internet forums. Detective Tanelli said in his de- deposition, We did see her come in with two gentlemen. She had, they had a box, gave it to her. She went up into her, to the elevator. We never saw them again on video. Could these two men have been involved in some way, or was the contents of that box perhaps what triggered Elisa's condition that evening, making them potentially culpable for the whole thing? I'll admit that this is perhaps the one thing that doesn't quite sit right with the neat and tidy explanations, but it doesn't exactly derail them either. With no footage of these men ever entering the hotel again, there's no reason, and no reason to believe that any illicit drugs were in Elisa's system, there's every chance that the meeting and the box were totally innocent. Perhaps the men were interviewed, and their faces weren't revealed to the public for fear of inciting the wrath of the internet mobs who were so invested in the story. It's worth noting that there is information in the case which hasn't been made public, likely to avoid a fresh wave of sensationalism. Another worrying sign is that Anderson leans heavily into the possibility of paranormal activity in the hotel, giving a description of his magnetic pull, which seems more fit for a Stephen King novel than a rational investigation. Yeah, this is the worst. Whenever someone... and this is a problem i don't know if it's a problem just i have but whenever i'm listening to someone and okay so say it's a doctor and i'm listening to an interview with a doctor who's talking about something 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 and they're like and then there's the toxins and i'm like oh okay now i really have to consider everything you're saying because i don't know if you actually are you know competent and people will say something like this like there'll be a investigation and all of the things seem to add up and then it'll be like and there were also ghosts and it's like, well, thanks. Now all of your rational stuff, I just can't take seriously because you believe that there were ghosts involved. It's like, come on. All of this in a book ostensibly about getting to the bottom of an unexplained death. That, for me, tips what is likely intended as a well-intended investigation into the realm of exploitation. And what a legacy of exploitation this case has been. Besides true crime books, it has inspired all kinds of media throughout the past seven years. The elevator footage itself has been replicated in a Hong Kong horror movie, Hungry Ghost Ritual. A whole series of the TV show, American Horror Story, was inspired by the hotel. Bands have named singles after the victim and produced music videos with her as a character. And Elisa has even popped up in video games. None of this is tasteful. None of this should have been done. Not nice. Seriously, imagine tragically losing a troubled loved one only for some video game developer to throw a pixelated version of her into some demon-infested elevator to be dragged off to hell. I'm not exaggerating, that's genuinely the plot of that part of the game. Its name is Yik, a postmodern RPG, and that of the studio that made it explain this questionable creative choice as follows. The death of Elisa Lam has bothered me since it happened. I feel like there still hasn't been a great official story about her. I remember on local news they reported it from the gross-out angle because people drank water that a corpse had been floating in. That's unfortunate. What about the poor girl who died? It's easy to say that she was off her meds, but why can't people think about her a bit more like a person? Well, how about you think about her and her family as people and not put her in your bloody video game? Uh, continuing. Yeah, well done, mate. What we really needed to happen was a playable, playable reenactment of the whole affair with demons thrown in for good measure. Yes, Callum and I, same page, yet again. This is very distasteful. I'm sure the parents are very thankful as well, if only it had been finished in time for the wake. I'm sure her extended family would have loved grinding away to save their loved one from the shadow dimension. With the sheer weight of media based upon this poor girl's death, you really have to take a step back and just say, guys, stop. I mean, even if the creator's aim is to explore Eliza's case tastefully, you still have to question if a real human being should be so extensively fictionalized and remixed, especially less than 10 years after her death. The first film script directly based on the events was cashed in on by scriptwriting siblings Philip and Brandon Murphy just a year afterwards. The movie is The Bringing. Yeah, and I really hope in this episode of The Casual Criminalist, we're... Like I realize here I am making a piece of media about this woman when I'm criticizing people for making pieces of media. But I want to point out that this is not like the same. It's not an exploitation piece. This is, I hope, a rational, factual look into a police investigation and a rather distasteful side of things. And hopefully bringing that to light rather than further exploiting someone's death. I don't feel bad about this. My radar doesn't like my moral radar doesn't tick wrong on it so i hope that you guys feel the same that's the age we live in i'm afraid where basic decency ends exploitation begins and where conventional investigations fail or falter madcap theories sprout up like weeds 
through cracks in a pavement. It's enough to make a good, honest, old-fashioned crime show presenter weep indeed. So if you want to believe that Elisa was attacked by government spooks or regular old serial killer spooks, I can't stop you. Otherwise, I hope you'll agree that we've had a good go at chopping through the jungle of weeds which have sprouted up around this tragic story. In the end, the overwhelming likely reality is that a young woman fell into some troubles due to long-standing mental health issues and didn't get the help she needed in a time of crisis. Likewise, despite its rough track record, there aren't any ghosts at the Cecil Hotel. It's just a place where the effects of drugs, despair, and deprivation have cropped up time and time again. That's about as close a thing to a curse as reality ever offers up. In closing for today, folks, I'll leave you with this. Remember to be one of the good guys. Whenever the next true crime dumpster fire starts online, don't start throwing gasoline onto the flames. Grab an extinguisher instead. As an online community, we owe it to the victims not to interfere with cases in ways that sensationalize their deaths or impede the progress of proper investigations. Even if you're a total skeptic about the official interpretation of events, think of it this way. If there really was some foul play involved in Elisa's death, the flurry of madcap theories has only helped the perpetrator slip through the cracks. And even if there was a grand conspiracy to it all, the sheer saturation of these theories in the public consciousness has allowed the truth to disappear into all that noise. No matter what you believe, I think we can all agree that it's in the best interests of everyone, victim, family, police, and all of us humble true crime fans, to not get carried away. Dismembered Appendices Number one. While much of the online attention heaped on this case was good-natured, some was markedly less so. Case in point, a second video was released online purporting to show another angle from another elevator on Elias's last evening. In reality, it was a shoddily done hoax featuring a completely different Asian woman pretending to be choked by a ghost and cowering in the corner. Online opportunists can really make you sick sometimes, agreed. Number two. Even after all these years, Elias's blog Nouvelle Nouveau is still active. I hope you'll agree that including little snippets of her writing added a bit of a human touch to this episode rather than just portraying her as a troubled victim. If you want to get a sense of the kind of person she was in life, definitely go seek it out. Although, please do so with good intentions. Don't go combing through the coded messages about the Canadian CIA or whatever. Number three. This one proves that a tinfoil hat wearers will go out of their way to dig out any so-called evidence and cling to it, and b sometimes sheer coincidence can throw them a big juicy bone. Around the time of the story, a tuberculosis outbreak in Skid Row meant that authorities were administering a common test for the disease, which was conspiracy theory gold. Why? Because its acronymic name is Lamb Elisa. That is quite a coincidence, but it is just that. It is a coincidence. Number four. To finish it off, let's briefly return to the bizarre Mexican death metal artist theory that I mentioned in passing. Going by the name of Mor Morbid, he regularly stayed at the Cecil and had recently shot a violent video there back in 2013. This was evidence enough for internet mobs in both China and America to label him a prime suspect, a prime suspect, because of course it was. Oh God, of course it was. Anyway, this has been another episode of the Casual Criminalist. I, I feel like I shouldn't say whether you enjoy these episodes, but hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please do consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you're watching the video version of this, please do hit that like button below. Leave a comment. All of that good stuff. I'll be back with another show real soon.